you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Peter, where we're going to be continuing our study in 1 Peter um, as we continue on in this uh, wonderful letter that Peter writes. Uh, Steve, make sure the congregational mic is still on. Um, So uh, many of you have been praying for Carol Martin. Um, He is still in the hospital. As he is, uh, as they're just trying to get a sense of what's going on and how to uh, best treat him. And so I just thought he's, he's listening today that on the count of three, we'll all say, hi, Carol. And he can hear us on the live stream. One, two, three. Hi, Carol. So, and now I'll, I'll test them to see if he actually first that. <laughs> now I texted him this morning and he said that. Uh, he's out of the ICU in a regular room and, um, you know, he's settled there. They're hoping tomorrow he can come home. So continue to pray for them. All right. So, uh, I'm going to say a word. Tell me what comes to mind when you hear this word. You can say it out loud. Jesus. Anything else? Eternal life. Anything else? Faith. Faith. Okay. Anything else? You guys are given like church answers. That's good. Um, a- anything else? Grace. Grace. Redemption. Redemption. Patience. Patience. Love. 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 Phillies. Phillies. <laughs> Our worship leader went there. You know, the guy that's bringing us before the throne and in worship. Yeah. So. Anything else? Well, hope can have all sorts of meanings in all sorts of different ways. Uh, Last Sunday, I faced 1 p.m. with a lot of hope. (laughs) By 4.15, my hope was dashed. Really, by 2 o'clock, my hope was dashed. Uh, I had great hope because in the preseason... The Steelers were juggernauts. Their starting offense had five drives and scored five touchdowns. But it was the practice part of the season. So visions of the Lombardi seem so distant right now. All hope was gone. Hope can be a funny thing. We often use it in terms of feeling that something would happen. You know, we wish these events will turn out a certain way. We hope that they will. And yet, that definition of hope is not secure. You know, when I had hope of attending a Super Bowl parade, and it still may happen, um... It's going to happen. It just might not be in Pittsburgh. Um, My hope isn't anchored in anything that is sure. And if you think about it in those terms, it's not really hope. Because we cannot be sure. I mean, you may be wishing that something happens. But how do you really know if it's going to happen? You all know what it's like to hope in something 
or to hope in someone or to hope in a situation that will be better only to find out that it won't. For too long, right? Because we live as aliens, as Peter said last week. When you live in a world that is broken and desperate for hope, and you're bombarded by the brokenness of that world, it is far too easy to become hopeless when what you are hoping for doesn't come to reality. Some of you this morning might be kind of on that razor's edge of hope. You have situations. There are people. Something might be in your life right now that you are hoping will change. Change for the positive. Change for the good. It might be a relationship restored. It might be a prognosis that will change physically. It might be the outcome of what a, uh, a superior in the work will tell you that will benefit or help you in what you're doing. But it might not change. The situation may get worse. And yet for us as people that love and follow Jesus, the message of the cross is that those who place their trust in him have a secure hope. It's a hope that does not disappoint. Jesus will never disappoint us. Ever. And I guess as your pastor, I'm very proud that outside of the Philadelphia Phillies, you gave such spiritual answers to my question. Because that says where you're placing your hope. This morning, we want to consider the sure hope that we have for the future because of the living hope. Jesus has given us. Listen, even as Christians, we go through times and seasons wondering if what is said about the future is true. Right? As a believer who reads the scriptures, who studies the scriptures, God has a lot to say about the future, right? Yes, he does. He has a lot to say with very great detail of the wonderful truths that show us of what is yet to come. And yet our experience on earth shows us that there are times and moments when what we have hoped for has brought disappointment. We've had hope and it has been dashed. And as Christians, sometimes as a result, we can often look at what God has promised with a bit of skepticism. Because we are so used to so accustomed to living in the right now, responding and reacting to what is happening right in front of us. We want to believe, 
But at times we might think, is this really true? And so for us, it is good to read the scriptures again together, to study them together. And to be reminded again that our hope is rooted in the reality of who Jesus is and guarded by the power of God. Listen, when God guarantees a promise, you can be sure that it will come to pass. When God makes a promise, He keeps it because it's secure in His ability. Not in ours, and it is certainly not in our circumstances. And those are the waves, right? The circumstances that go up and down. And so we need to be reminded and encouraged in those things. So let's pray before we open the word and just ask God's spirit to help us with this very important, not just subject, but reality of the certain hope we have in Christ. Father, help us now in these moments to hear from you, to have your spirit open our hearts and minds, to teach us, to remind us, to shape us into people that have great hope in what has already been accomplished and great hope in what is to come. And so, Father, I pray for every person here, no matter what the circumstances of their life is, Jesus doesn't change. What he has accomplished doesn't change. And what he has secured for us will never change. And so, Father, I pray that we would draw close to Jesus and stay close to him. Help us to see him in the text of Scripture, because He is our living hope. We thank You, Father, for the promise of Your presence in our lives. Now help me as an instrument in Your hands to bring forth Your truth for Your glory. Amen. We're going to look at 1 Peter chapter 1. I'm going to read to you verses 3 through 5 as we consider this hope that Jesus gives. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. What I find interesting is that Peter opens his letter to scattered aliens, as we discussed last week, named them as being people who belong to certain regions of Asia Minor who, as we will see throughout this letter that he writes, were facing different trials and persecutions and circumstances as followers of Jesus living in a fallen world. They were becoming overwhelmed and, and they were feeling as distant pilgrims that they didn't have a home. 
And Peter encourages them to consider that they're just passing through. They're on their way to something greater. More importantly, they're on their way to see someone greater. They have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, and they are sanctified by the Spirit for the purpose of obeying Christ. And after Peter opens this letter with that that wonderful declaration of who they are, he then shifts their focus of who they are as strangers and aliens to consider what is to come. Because there are people that are beaten down and they need to be encouraged. And if you read the book of First Peter or the letter that Peter writes to these aliens, what you will see is that Peter writes as an apostle of great encouragement. Like he's writing exhortations and truths to support and lift up and to blow fresh wind into the faith of these believers that are beaten down by the circumstances of life. And the next thing that he says to these scattered aliens is that he praises God. He says, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice he doesn't talk about the, the trials and sufferings that they're facing and boo hoo. It's, it's so terrible that we're suffering. Now he'll get to trials and sufferings and we'll even touch on that next week. But the first thing that he does to these believers is to catch their affections up to heaven. For many of his readers, their circumstances were showing them that much of what they are experiencing is unsure. And you may have gone through seasons of that in your own life with Jesus, where you love Jesus, you're following Jesus, you're hoping in the promises that he's given, you've seen in different ways the reality of what he has promised, and yet there are circumstances that have come into your life that maybe have kind of blindsided you and and caught you to think, oh my, God, are you on the throne right now? God, are you in control of the circumstances of my life? God, do you love me? God, are you caring for me? And so in the midst of their suffering, Peter assures them that they can rejoice in their sufferings because they will ultimately be glorified. When scripture promises us that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God. For a world that is broken and lost, that means nothing to them. It's an impossibility. But for those who are of the faith to hear the promise that God uses all things, even the terrible things, to work together for good in our lives because we love Him. There's a sense of the great power and sovereignty of God to not waste any moment to use it for our good and his glory. And when we talk about this promise of glorification, which is in this passage, what I say about when I, when I use this term is that glorification is the new Testament understanding of the future tense of our salvation. And you might be saying, What does that mean? Well, the scriptures use three words to explain the grand, amazing relationship that we have with Jesus through faith in him. 
It begins with what happens at the point of change, the moment that we are made right with God. The scriptures use the term justification. And justification is a legal term that conveys that the righteous judge now looks at condemned sinners and forgives their sin and sees them as righteous people. They are justified in the presence of God. And so if you are in Jesus Christ, know this, you stand before a holy God righteous because you have been made righteous through the blood of Jesus Christ. And then the scriptures use a term of the present activity of our salvation, the working out of our salvation. And it's the word sanctification. And, and if you're in the faith and you're breathing air, so that's hopefully all of you this morning, it's this idea that God is working out his will in your life and you are being sanctified as you are being conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. And yet you have this old sin nature that is waging war with this new nature in you. And so the sanctification process kind of has its ups and downs, but you're always trending towards God. You're being changed. And then the final future tense of our salvation is this term glorification. To be glorified means to be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ when we end our journey here on earth. Here's what the scriptures promise. When we breathe our last breath, in an instant, we go to be with the Lord. And in that instant that we go to be with the Lord, we are gloriously transformed. And sin is no more. Because where Jesus is, there is no sin. There is no suffering. There is no crying. There is no disease. There is no pain. To be with Jesus means that we are truly victorious over sin and death. And so Peter says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Not only can these believers rejoice in their future, and he's going to talk about that in these verses, but he, he also calls these believers in the midst of their circumstances to bless God. To bless God means to give him praise. Now, we did that corporately beginning right around 930 this morning. But really, to bless God is, goes far beyond what we experience just here. It's going to happen later today. Tomorrow morning, Wednesday afternoon, when Saturday comes and you think, whew, I got a break. Like the, the, the posture of the follower of Jesus is to be a person who is continually blessing God for who he is. Listen, if all we have is Jesus, like if that's all we have, and there's no promises for us. If all we have is Jesus, we have enough grounds to stand on to praise God's name forever. We praise God as his children, not because of the benefits that he gives us as being a part of his family. And those are many. We praise him because he is God and worthy 
of our praise. Just for who He is and His goodness and glory. So here, the root of Peter's praise is the mercy of God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy... The focus of Peter's praise at this point in blessing God's name is that he has considered the great mercy of God. And this great mercy of God has given us a living hope. So our hope then is based upon God's mercy. Our hope, as we discussed last week, is fixed in the foreknowledge of God. It's not based on us. Our hope is not based on us. What is to come in the future is not based on you. It's not based on your performance. It's not based on how good you are. It's not based on how great you think you are. Your hope is fixed upon the mercy of God. Now, this word mercy carries with it the the understanding of feeling pity and compassion towards the miserable. How were you before you met Jesus? Some of you are saying, I don't know, I didn't feel that bad. But spiritually, what was your condition? You're dead. You were dead in your sins and trespasses. You were not alive. You were breathing air, but you weren't alive. Truly alive the way that your creator intended you to be. And we can't help our condition. We can't do anything. We couldn't muster up enough effort and energy to pull ourselves out of the pit and say, okay, I'll take the first step and then God will meet me. God doesn't do that. We're dead. We're literally breathing in an open grave when we're living on this earth. And God looks at his creation with compassion and pity. He sees our miserable, under, or, uh, our, our miserable circumstances and situations that we find ourselves in. And so what does God do as a loving creator? He doesn't say, well, they'll figure it out. No. Before the foundation of the world, God made the first move. He knew. He saw. And he planned. And he stepped into our helpless state. And Jesus came to the earth to fulfill all the promises that the Old Testament had given about what it means to be forgiven. And he laid down his life on the cross to pay for all of the miserable things that we do. It's according to God's mercy that we have hope. God has caused us by his mercy to what? Well, the text says to be born again, to be born again, according to his great mercy. God saw how miserable we were in our sin, how helpless, how much we were in trouble, how dead. And he moved with compassion towards us and he caused us. And this word caused carries the idea of to take place like he's doing it. Notice it's not based on what we're doing. God caused it. God is the prime mover. This word in the original language 
means that there was an act foreign of our ability. And he caused us to be born again. That's what Jesus said to Nicodemus, right? John 3, 3, Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You must be born again. That's the only way that you can have living hope is to be born again. Now, this phrase born again describes the Christian who experienced spiritual regeneration. They've been born again. They've been regenerated from being dead to being made alive. And God is the one who causes that. One commentator noted, the Christian is as incapable of starting himself on the new life as he was of conceiving himself for his first life. We need to be born again. To be born again is an honor given by God, the one who makes us alive in him. If you were to ask people what comes to mind, and when I say people, I don't mean just people in this room. Maybe people in this room understand it better, but if you were to ask people you know, in the community or people from other churches, what comes to mind when you hear the phrase born again? Many in the church and many outside the church will say it's a bunch of fanatics. And those people that are born again, they're crazy. Those strange Christians who explain a relationship with Jesus as being one where they have to be born again. And, and it all started in the, the late 60s and early 70s as um, there, there was this reminder that a, a relationship with Jesus is not based on where you go to church and what you do for God. But it's based on a personal relationship where God restarts, rebirths your heart. And I think sometimes in terms that are used in Scripture and the way that we often apply them in circumstances causes them to lose its efficacy. And people look at the... The people that are born again as these strange people. Well, guess what? We are strange. I told you that last week. Did you fly your UFO to work on Monday? I mean, you're an alien. You don't belong here. This isn't your home. You've been made alive to God by his mercy. Brothers and sisters, there is no better way to explain what occurs in salvation than to say that you've been born again. We are truly born again by God's mercy to a new life with a new nature, given a new heart. We're no longer dead in our sins and trespasses, but are made alive through the spirit with the promise of, as as what Peter says here, of having a living hope. We are born again to a living hope. The living hope we are born again to is the eager, confident expectation of life to come. Here's what I know about my relationship with Jesus to this point in my 44 years on this earth. If my relationship with Jesus is this good, and it's good, like I know my Savior loves me. 
I know he has provided. I know he cares for me. I know that he's changing me. I know that he's growing Christ's likeness in me. I can see the process of God molding and shaping and fitting me for a future glory even now. And if it's like that now, oh my, what is to come? It's living hope. It's being able to look forward. And you know what that's like, right? To be with people that are facing the end of their journey here to be able to look forward with living hope. Brothers and sisters that have gone on in the Lord and they face the final season of their life and their physical earth suit, their tent, this body is wearing out and they're able to look beyond what they see with the living hope of what is to come because they know that Jesus is there. Like that's what is caused in us when we press on in the faith and God causes us to be regenerated through the gracious and merciful act of being born again, that we have a living hope. It's living because it grows in strength year by year. As you walk with Jesus, your expectation of what is to come gets stronger and stronger. Like what I knew about Jesus as a freshman in Bible college in the fall of 1998 was like, eh. And 25 years later, it's like, eh. And then when I get to be with him, it's going to be like, oh my word. But our expectation changes. It grows. Our hope is rooted not in an experience, though. We can't miss that. Listen to what Peter says. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. See that? Our hope is expected because of what Jesus Christ has already done. He's already raised from the dead. That is why for us, when we use the word hope and we say, what is hope? It's not, well, the Steelers can win a game. No, it's not that because I don't know if they can win a game or not. My hope is rooted in the person of Jesus Christ because he's already victorious over sin and death. And, and everything about me is placed in everything and what he's already done. And because he's already done it and secured it, I can be sure that whatever he says about the future, it's going to happen. Our hope is based on the fact that Jesus conquered death in the grave. This hope is not based on a relative circumstance, an experience. A, well, boy, that went in my favor. No. You know, the, 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 the evidence from the circumstances of many Christians in the world since Jesus came is that they came to faith and they were crushed on this earth. And they pressed on in the faith. And did not deny him because they knew that there was something to come, someone to come that is far greater. 
Our hope is grounded in the objective reality of Jesus Christ's resurrection from the dead. We are resurrection people. Without the resurrection, all of our faith is worthless. In fact, Paul said it, right? In 1 Corinthians 15, if the resurrection isn't true, your faith is worthless. You're wasting your time. Jesus' resurrection is our sure basis for personal assurance as to our past, present, and future. Our hope is anchored in the past. Jesus arose. Our hope remains in the present. Jesus lives. Our hope is completed in the future. Jesus is coming. And so Paul, or Peter writes in verse 4 that this living hope that is rooted in the resurrection will be obtained as an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Now, Peter now explains what our hope is. While rooted in Jesus, Peter now assures his readers that these aliens and pilgrims who do not have a home here, not only have a home in heaven, but also an inheritance. He's saying, you don't belong here, but you have something up there. You have an inheritance. God has promised that his children will share in the glory to come. Now, this word inheritance conveys the idea of wealth that is passed down or a legacy one receives as a member of a family. Our inheritance is none other than Jesus Christ himself. Our inheritance is reserved in heaven for us. It's already marked off. It's already set aside. Like there's a lot of people going to heaven because they have expressed faith in Jesus Christ. And every person that has expressed faith in Jesus Christ has an inheritance. And, and in my mind, I think there's, there's got to be a point where it runs out. You can only divide it a certain number of ways. But man, my, my mind is just small and tiny and cannot comprehend the grand things of God. Because for every person that has placed their faith in Jesus Christ, they have a living hope that gives them an inheritance that is already marked off for them. And in a very real way, it's the person of Jesus. This is how the New Testament describes it. 1 John 3.2, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him, because we will see Him just as He is. What a thought. That we will be sinless, glorified, perfect. We also read in Colossians 3, 4, when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 says, in him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. The fact that God's spirit is inside of you that comes in you at the moment of your salvation as the spirit indwells you is God's promise to you that 
you will receive what is to come in the future. And any time you doubt, God, is there still an inheritance for me? God, is there still a future for me? God, what is there left for me? He reminds you, my spirit's inside of you. I've made a promise to you and I will keep it. And everything that he said will come to pass. In Romans 8, 11, Paul says, but if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the, his spirit who dwells in you. We have a great inheritance that is ours. The full possession of this inheritance awaits for the future, though. So here's what Peter is saying to this point. Beloved, life is difficult here on earth. You don't belong here. It's not your home. But Jesus came to guarantee you a new life with him. And because he is raised from the dead, you can be sure that you have a future with him. This future promise is not based on what you do, but based solely on his ability to secure it. And to assure us of this inheritance, Peter explains three things about this inheritance. First, it's imperishable. Second, it's undefiled. And third, it will not fade away. Now, in the original language Peter wrote this letter in, he used an alliteration. An alliteration is, you know, using a bunch of words with the same uh, first letter because, like, memorization is important. They didn't have books to carry around with them. And so uh, he, he used a device to help them to remember of the amazing quality of what is theirs to come. So in the original language, each Greek word, imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away, begins with the same letter. And it also ends with the same ending. Imperishable. And give me a second because I have it written down. I just need to make sure I attempt to say it correctly. The word imperishable is the word aftharton. Impurity, which means undefiled, it's amianton. And will not fade away is amaranton. And as the readers heard these words, they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, those all sound the same, but they mean different things. But what Peter is saying about what is ours to come is our inheritance cannot be destroyed. It cannot be polluted or it will not decay. It's death proof, sin proof and time proof. There's no expiration on it. What God promised then we will still receive in the future. Nothing can change or touch what God has promised. Now, verse 5 explains the security of our hope. You might be saying at this point, Pastor, that sounds great. I can't wait. But how are we sure? How are we sure that these promises from God that apply to me will come to pass? Verse 5 says, For those that the inheritance have been reserved for, you who are protected by the power of God, through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This is the security of our hope. Those who are born again and have received an inheritance are those who are protected by the power of God. 
You're protected by the power of God through faith. God is the one who guards his children. Brothers and sisters, God is watching over you. Your father loves you. He is keeping watch and guarding you. He is the promise keeper. And aren't you glad that the promises that he made are not dependent on you? I know I am. He protects our inheritance and he protects his children by his power. The word guarded is in the present tense. What does that mean? God is continually guarding us. Always. Everyone. For all time. It is so good to know that God never gets tired, nor does he ever sleep. That he can keep watch on each one of his own because he is able and because he loves us. The Lord is carefully watching us and preserving us from escaping out of his kingdom. Now, we need to be clear of what Peter is saying in verse 5. Our faith doesn't protect us and keep us saved. When Peter writes in verse 5, we are protected by the power of God through faith. It's not that our faith is what is doing it. But our faith in him means that we believe that he is the one that is able to guard and protect us. It's God's power that secures us in our salvation. God has made a commitment to every believer that he will secure them to the very end. We, re- we read in a different place. In Philippians, Paul writes, he who began a good work in you will complete it in the day of Jesus Christ. God begins it. He'll complete it. He keeps and secures those who are his. The Lord will keep those that are his to the very end. And the Lord will not lose any one of you. You are eternally secure in Jesus Christ to receive an eternal inheritance. He keeps us for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This speaks to the future tense of our salvation, meaning the time when we as believers will be gloriously transformed as sinless, glorified people. This is the salvation the completion of our salvation that takes place at the last time. When the Lord returns for us, we're going to be glorified. And when we're glorified, we are saved from the presence of sin forever. It's sure, it's certain, it's secure. Brothers and sisters, if you are fatigued by the thought of hope, look no further than the empty tomb. Remind yourself, of who Jesus is and what he has accomplished. Because everything that is yet to come is rooted in his ability to conquer sin and death. Jesus is alive. His promises are certain. The hope that he gives does not disappoint. Your future is secure because he is alive. Your hope is not contingent on anything you do, any promises another person can make to you. Your hope is settled in heaven. And so may God... Continue to show mercy upon us as we walk through this world as aliens in a foreign land who desperately need the promise of a hope and a future with him.
And so let's pray together.